0: Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone I go way back with from the bands. I guess we'll go uh, chronological order. Dirge, Day of Mourning, Coming Correct, Integrity, Slumlords, or maybe Slumlords then Integrity. Uh, 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 Ilsa. N-Rain, uh, Heat Waves, I'm, I'm definitely screwing up the order now. Uh, most recently, though, of the band's Permanent Mistakes and N-Rain, who put out one of my favorite LPs from last year, Dominic Romeo is on the show today, a.k.a. Dom. Very excited for you to hear this one. Oh, also, he runs an incredible record label, too. A-389 Records as well. But more on all of that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That's run by my brother, and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram, at Left4Damian. Uh, there's also a Facebook page, a Instagram page, a TikTok page, and a YouTube page, all for this podcast. All those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on those platforms right there. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about this podcast. Let them all know. There's this podcast and there's good episodes that you like hearing and uh, spread the word that way. You can also check out the band I play and We are called Fucked Up. We have uh, a tour coming up of the West Coast of the United States in the end of January, beginning of February. And we will be putting out tons of records as well. All information can be found at fuckedup.cc or at fuckedup on Instagram and Twitter, YouTube, uh, fucked up social media platforms everywhere as well. And that is that. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, someone I've known for a very long time on the show today, Dominic Romeo, who is a, a, a hardcore legend at this point, putting out some incredible records on his label, having played in some unbelievable bands over the years. Oh, I forgot Pulling Teeth. How could going to forget Pulling Teeth off the top of the show. Pulling Teeth as well. Uh, Dom is someone who is a, a lifer in this genre and someone who's always had like a, a really cool unique perspective that I think the world's just kind of caught up to. You'll hear about it all in the, today's episode in terms of the stuff he listens to and he's head of the curve on a lot of stuff over me, that's for sure. But you'll hear us talk about it in a second. As I said off the top of the show, Enrain rain put out a fantastic LP uh, last year, which you should all go and pick up on the Mighty Relapse record the Way of All Flesh is Decay And this is a super group With all that warm people Bloodlet people Integrity people And 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 well Dom's All Dom's catalog stuff and Misery Index and stuff So check out this band A fantastic album That is out now And uh, I won't ramble on anymore So sit back Relax And enjoy Dom Unturned Out A Punk <laughs> Dom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You are someone that I should have, I've wanted to have on for like years at this point. I think you have, and I might have even told you this in person, but I think you have the most incredible journey in punk and hardcore. Um, And, you know, I feel like there's shit that we're going to talk about today that you and me were maybe two of 12 people in the room for. So it's this is going to be a fun one. (laughs) absolutely i agree uh well i gotta start off the way they all start off which is dumb how'd you get into punk do you remember the first
1: time you ever came across it wow um i mean there's so many different tiers for me i came from a metal background when i was a little kid you know i loved van halen and kiss and acdc and all that stuff and you know i think most like most people my age i'm 46 going on 47 Thrash was kind of a gateway. I had gotten into Metallica and Anthrax, which kind of, you know, opened the door to SOD and to DRI and bands like that, which in turn opened the door to everything else that started, you know, it kind of like, you know, rolled off of that and uh, Sepultura and like all the Roadrunner bands. But for me, the pivotal point was um, seeing Madball at the Elma Combo. I think it would have been 1995 and it was a free show upstairs. with Doggy Dog and Downset. I don't know if you remember this one, <laughs> but I didn't know anything about this band at all, right? My friend's just like, you gotta check this out. You'll love these guys. And I was like, all right, cool. So I go, I go see them. And my first takeaway is that the songs are really short, they're in your face. And it's just like this band is like, oh, I came from a metal world, so I wasn't used to you know being that engaged with the scenario. And it was incredible. A second takeaway was everyone loved this guitar player that looked like just some French baker. He had like a little mustache, and everyone kept yelling his name between songs. I had no, you know, I, I don't know, right? I'm just like, why does everyone like this guy so much? You just tell him sigma every song. He's like, you know, and it's like, I had, I had a lot to unpack when I went home that night. You know, there was no internet, so I had to kind of kind of do a lot of a lot of reverse legwork to figure that one out. But I'm glad I did.
0: Well, how many people were
1: there, right? Because, like, 95, Madball, like, I,
0: I, I've i heard of this show. but And I saw Madball at the Elmo, what, like, five years later? Four years later, they'd play there again? But, like, 95, that is, like, not very many
1: people in Toronto, I think, knew who Madball no, was at that point. I think maybe, I don't know, 50 is generous. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was a Monday night. It was free. And they were all, like, kind of touring on their first. Doggy Dog was in All Bro Kings. Downset was on self Title, And Madball was on set it off. And, you know, it was like, you know, they, had, they were starting from, like the, they were building it from the ground up. And I was really fortunate to get to see that. That was a life changer for me. I just knew that's what I wanted to do after seeing that, you know?
0: It feels like Toronto also, like, for the longest time, was kind of like a wasteland for hardcore. Like, hardcore, so many classic shows that there were, like, yeah, less than 50 people at in Toronto. Like, there was, like, such a small scene. And then when I say Toronto, I mean, like, all of us in the kind of greater Toronto area
1: coming in to make 50 people at these shows agreed. Yeah. So I was thinking about that today, actually. And, uh, you put it best. It was an absolute wasteland. I remember like, you know, after getting the bug and trying to find like-minded friends, other shows and whatnot, it wasn't happening in Toronto at the time. You know, we had to either travel to Windsor or Montreal just to see that kind of thing where people like were kind of into those bands. Unless you were, you know, the chokehold era had just passed at that point. It was kind of coming to an end. And, uh, you know, there was really no place for that kind of hardcore in Toronto. It didn't really come around later until No Warning popped up and, like, you know, kind of championed it and brought it back. So it was like a real gray area. And I got to give credit. There was a guy named Jay Sterling that was, like, a guy from London. Used called Warzone Jay because he always had that Warzone hoodie on all the time, 24-7. <laughs> Only outfit i've ever seen this dude wear was a camel shorts and Warzone hoodie and uh he was responsible during that era of like 96 to maybe 98 of like probably a lot of these shows you're talking about he was the guy Mm -hmm. he was the guy that was doing club shanghai that was like uh blood for blood and stigmata i don't know if you remember that show it was like a tuesday and it was before the promise ring was playing yeah it was you me uh the terror twins there were like so few of us there five people there but, you know, you go now, and it was like, of course I was at that show. And I was like, you were lying at the Promise Ring show, dude. <laughs> yeah, you were not inside. You were not they inside. were so pissed. I think I don't think I've seen Sigmata and Blood for Blood angrier. Oh, I mean, it was a Tuesday matinee, right? So it was like the were kind of <laughs> stacked against them. But, wow, Jay did, like, all the shows at 360. I swear I saw All Out War for the first time and uh, Blood for Blood for the first time. Mushmouth had played, and uh, it was just – it was a cool – he was – instrumental in bringing a lot of that i remember the one show that i wanted to be true so bad that it wasn't it was fury of five i remember me and the terror twins were hanging out outside just hoping they would show up hoping that like something would happen like we stayed way longer than we should have hoping that something would turn around and it never did because uh that show unfortunately didn't go down in the books but yeah he was instrumental and then i i kind of picked up the torch and started doing shows too because i wanted to see those kind of bands and you know 100 demons at jcc was a real good one with death threat remember that one mm-hmm. you know and uh it's a lot of cool stuff and like i said by the time the warning started being a band things were in full swing and you know that's kind of that's kind of was my experience with that
0: yeah i think there's like uh like that kind of no warning day of morning um you know i guess where it ends the swarm kind of was also like yeah. around that time too like, it felt like all that comes together, and I think it's like, we've we've talked about this off-air, too, but, like, that post that Sick of It All, Strife, Trigger Happy, One King Down show in Toronto, like, that, to me, felt like the closing of one chapter in Toronto Punk and the beginning of sort
1: of, like, the next era. Absolutely. That show was epic. Everybody was at that show. You know, everybody wanted to see Sick of It All. They were, like, at the height of their powers, you yeah. know? And yeah. People were curious. Victory was kind of popping off at the time, and, you know... Not many of the bands had made it over at that point. I think that was the Stripe's first time. I might be wrong. But uh, yeah, everyone was really stoked, you know. And that was like, also, that also became a, with all those bands you mentioned, it became a point of congregation where like Windsor would roll out, Montreal would roll out. And like the shows were really, really great. Like it was always like awesome, you know. It was
0: it's a fond memory. I remember the, that's the first time I met you, I think, was in that pit just before
1: Sick of It All played. We probably. Were, we, we talked about Integrity. Yeah, sounds right. I always think it was in front of Who's Emma for some reason. But, uh, that you're probably right, yeah.
0: But I, by that point, see, it's funny because, like, I guess maybe Jay was doing shows some of those shows earlier than I'm thinking because Dirge was already like a real band, like, you guys already were being played on, on like loud. You guys had that ARA fight
1: song 90, yeah. 95, <laughs> yeah. We did, um, yeah. But you got, remember, Dirge didn't really come into the hardcore scene you know, with uh, all boxes checked, we kind of like, you know, immigrated over from the Roadrunner world. You know, we came from that whole Fear Factory machine head. And then Madball adjacent, you know, was kind of like the gateway for us. But uh, yeah, at the time, you know, we were doing a lot of shows. I mean, geez, I think about like, when Dirge was starting, we were like in high school and we used to, none of us drove. And we used to take all of our equipment on the subway. We used to literally take it from Malton, which is a suburb out by the airport, and we'd get a bunch of our friends with us. and so we'd all like just, you know, daisy chain our guitar caps, the drums and everything. We'd take it on the bus, take it <laughs> off, get it on the subway, take it off, go play the show, leave it at the club and come get it the next day the same way and bring it back. Because none of us drove. But we wanted there was just nothing more that we wanted to do than just play in the city and be a band that played. You know, that was that was it. It was never about being the biggest or the best or the coolest because we're none of those. but uh was just about getting to do it you know and like we all had that hunger to do it and it was made a lot of memories for sure well it was also that drive too because you guys had
0: cds out when bands were struggling to put out tapes you know like you guys had a video like you know you guys were doing it like like and and it seems like that's almost immediately after you go to this mad ball show like you're like is it like was dirge going before you got in a mad ball
1: um the dirge demo would have been like 94 Going into 95, so that Madball show would have been around the time the CD had just come out or was about to come out. And, you know, we were totally new. We didn't know what we were doing, right? Um, we had a, a place that we rehearsed called Rumblefish Studios, which was out in Etobicoke, which was, like, instrumental in, in helping us out. Dave, the owner, recorded us, barely charged us anything. You know, he really just wanted to see one of, the, one of the bands in the space do something. So, you know, he helped us press the CDs. He was, like, a huge, huge, huge part in that. And from there, you know, I'd remiss if I didn't mention Noel, the infamous Toronto promoter, had a huge hand in making sure, you know, he'd help us out. We'd play a bunch of shows and just do a bunch of wild stuff. I remember the first shows in the U.S. Dirge ever played were, like, in Huntington, West Virginia. It was a weekend in West Virginia (laughs) and Virginia. And that was it. We just played these two weird redneck bars. And uh, I recently went on vacation with my kids to West Virginia. We went to, like, a snow tubing place over Christmas. I'm like, whoa, you know, (laughs) I haven't been here since... 1995 and, like we played this weird redneck bar. there's like nobody there but I totally remember because those were the first two shows I remember Noel be like oh I'd like to go to Huntington West Virginia and like you know we're like okay <laughs> you know and uh, how did you get these shows like how the
0: fuck is Noel booking shows in, in the which wasn't the
1: hardcore world right so this was yeah. pretty much if someone hits a promoter in another city and is like hey can you hook us up with a show we'll play for what for bar money you know what I mean whatever It was just bands that were trying to do things. We weren't really tapped into Hardcore Network at the time. So it was really just a trial by fire. We were really like, we'll show up anywhere that'll have us. We don't care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, finding five like-minded people that would do that and that were willing to, like, kind of throw their life away at the time and, like, throw their money away and just do it. It was was huge. You know what I mean? It was just unreal. And then he finally figured it out because he got us into a show with uh, Against All Hope in Buffalo around that time in Asbury Alley. It was a, I think it was this club, still remember it cause it was like the first time I'd seen a real, like, you know, talking a mad ball show, it was the first time I figured out, I'm like, okay, we're misdirecting our energy here. This is kind of like, this is what I want. And some, I remember almost getting knocked out by some dude that was moshing super, super hard it's against all hope, which is, you know, figure kind out of the me. irony there, <laughs> <laughs> melodic band, but you know, it was just a thing. And we became friends with like Steve Titus and those, those dudes in Lockjaw and like, it just snowballed. I think back then, and this was before an internet time, you would have to make friends with people that had similar interests and those friendships held more weight. You know I mean? It meant a lot to know, you know, like John from Connecticut that also liked integrity. That was like a dude in your network. You know, that was a dude you can hit up and would be like, actually we did have a guy in Connecticut. And his name was Earl. He would go by Earl, the Duke of thrash. <laughs> and he had a zine. And you know he brought us out to connecticut and it was awesome you know it was just like that easy back then you could send somebody a tape or a cd and be like hey we'll play for a place to sleep on your floor you know what i mean we just want to come out and do it and that's that's how it all kind of started well then that's the thing
0: once you get tapped in that network and you kind of see it it's the most incredible thing in the world because people aren't motivated by money it's like one of the few places in the world where people aren't motivated by money absolutely yeah uh, it's funny, too, when you think back to Toronto, because, like, obviously the walls break down eventually and we become one big scene. But even though there's only, like, 50 people at most in some of these rooms, it was all
1: so divided. Oh, back you, couldn't, you couldn't say it better. It was absolutely. We weren't made welcome at all. You know, we were like some nerds from the suburbs. Nobody wanted anything to do with us. And uh, But they were also, like, you know, like Wizard of Oz. They were, like, the big man behind the curtain. Cause, I mean, the little guy behind the curtain because there wasn't really anything to protect. You know, there wasn't much of a scene to, like, you know, they can hop and pop. that, like, you weren't here for, like, uh, you know, why, why, why or some shit. But, like, it's like, yeah, so what? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I always had a rule about music where it's like, you did not have to be there. You can discover stuff at your own pace. I always take that into consideration with every band I've ever done. It's never meant to be a band. that's going to pop up at the moment. and be this huge thing. It's always something where it's like, oh, yeah, I wonder what that guy did after that. And you check it out. And you're like, well, that's cool. You know? I discovered why, 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 way after I wasn't around for any of that stuff. I would never pretend to be either, you know. But there's just a lot of like, you know, I hate using the word, but it's like just real pompous, like posturing about like dictating who's allowed to participate and be this and that. We were just never like that, you know. We just wanted everybody to have a good time. If you like music, you're my friend. You know what I mean? I mean that's how simple it was back then. Now I'd be a little more <laughs> I'd scrutinize it a little bit more before yeah. I decided. But back then, you know, like I said, you like. I just visited a buddy of mine this dude manny and uh we had met in montreal when dirge played in montreal because he was wearing an integrity shirt this was like almost 30 years ago no i'm sorry it was an integrity hat he had the old the hat that you can get the victory catalog yes and me and my daughter just visited him in new york and i was explaining to my daughter we met just because this dude was wearing an integrity hat and that was it and we're friends like 30 years later <laughs> you know it's just like it's an unbelievable thing and it's also funny because integrity
0: and now it seems so weird to say this, but that was the height of them being unfashionable. Oh, absolutely. Like no one liked integrity then. And so we were like a cult unto ourselves. Like we would like talk about integrity. I remember you trying to bring them to Toronto and like, you know, but it was just like, there were so few of us. So yeah, like anytime you saw someone with an integrity thing on, you'd be like, yo,
1: I want to be friends with that guy. Yes, Yes. absolutely. And you know, their whole catalog was kind of, and shrouded in mystery, there's no internet. so you, if, Other than the victory records, I didn't even know Those Who Fear Tomorrow existed until, I don't know, 97, until Humanity came out, right? Because I, I got, uh, I used to trade VHS tapes with Warzone J. And, uh, you know, Integrity Set would be mostly these songs I didn't know, and I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, what are these songs, <laughs> you know? And it, it took a lot of uh legwork to figure that out. I was at a show and I saw in the distro, they had that, and Those Who Still Fear Tomorrow reissue. I was like, Jesus Christ! I'm like, this is incredible, you know. I mean, this is like all the world. I even remember day morning, the band that came after Dirge, recorded in Cleveland. We went to Mars to do our our record solely on the strength and wings of loving integrity. And like, you know, just Worm at the time, you know, like just being obsessed with that world and having so little to go off of. And I was hoping to go into those record stores, like uh, Chris Shattered Shattered Records was one, I think, and Warp was another one. Forgive me, it's been many years. I might be yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, just being able to find like the comp for atonement that had an integrity song and state of conviction song on it, Rape Whistle was on it, just shit you wouldn't see anywhere else except in Cleveland. Oh man, that was like a utopia. <laughs> you know I was like, oh wow. It.
0: And it was like such like, uh, and it's so cool. Like, that's what I think is so amazing is that you've put together this kind of scene of all these bands that you liked and like, you know, through the label and just through being in some of these bands and working with these bands. But like at the time, this stuff was like beyond obscure. Yeah. Like coldest life was, you know, obviously a legendary band, but like you couldn't get any
1: of that stuff. No, Windsor was the closest ties. Uh, James Hardtime time that used to do sounds of revolution records. I would go stay with him because coldest life. I mean, Detroit was, you know, pretty much sister city of Windsor and you know, we, I got to see Cole's life a few times during that that prime era, and it was just, it was magical. You know, it was funny. I used to sleep on James's couch, and we would listen to "Sheer Terror." Just can't hate enough. Get you know, get pumped. <laughs> and first thing, when Jeff G got out, and he was telling me, you know, that's his favorite record, and I'm like, man, you know, what's funny is I used to listen to this record before coming to Detroit to get pumped up. So I sent him my copy. I was like, you know what, if anyone should have this, you should have this. And it's like just this, you know. Communal greatness, full full circle moments. Absolutely. And I remember uh, going into stores and being intimidated. You know, I was kind of a shy kid at the time and uh, didn't really feel like I fit into that picture. And being able to stump the guys in the record store that were selling Earth Crisis and Snapcase stuff by the boatload and be like, hey, do you have any integrity? Do you have any pale creation? And they're like, yeah, but it's not in stock right now. You know, (laughs) kind of like (laughs) unspoke. And I'm just like, looking back years later integrity was always the band for dudes like us that were like the dudes that didn't fit in anywhere else you know it was truly a band for the band of the misfits and i feel like why boys gravitated towards them and they've just kind of been you know they've been a part of my life for most of my life at this point it's insane to think about
0: yeah that was the first thing we ever talked about was that you were like i'm going to try and bring integrity up here Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: i was talking to sean moe who was roading for grade back then and he's like "There's no way." You know, there's no way you're ever going to get those guys up here. And then here you
1: are fucking a, a member of the band years later. You know, what's funny is I remember I used to write them and Dwyde would like, you know, he'd be like, ah, we're not alone in Canada. And that's all he would say. it's very mysterious. You know, there like, is. But I'd be like, why not? I was like, just punishing the poor dude. Like, you know, I was, I was excited. You yeah. know, I just really wanted to be, that's the band I wanted to see more than anything. And uh, I never gave up. I finally got them to play Toronto in like 2013. Yeah, <laughs> like, the first time they ever played Toronto was because I brought them over. You know, I was like, all right, we have to do this. This has to, like, close the circle. And in high school, they had played Buffalo, State of Conviction. It was on the Seasons and the Size of Days tour. And my girlfriend at the time, it was her birthday. And I was like, dude, we go to the show. You can have 10 birthdays next week, every day. We do whatever you want. I have to see the show. And she's like, oh, absolutely not. You know, no way. And, like, you know, it didn't happen. I tried to do the right thing. And then go. Integrity breaks up. Another <laughs> oh, so yeah. moment was reuniting the Melnick lineup in 2000 uh 2012 for that same that same reason I'm sorry 2014 for the same you know I think I think a closure pun intended <laughs> but you know
0: <laughs> yeah it's it, it's uh I don't know it's, it's just so awesome that we get to kind of like live in this world where these heroes become peers and then ultimately like you're able to kind of like give yourself these moments and give yourself these kind of like full circle things.
1: It's that it's definitely wild
0: for sure. It's so I remember Jay uh Warzone Jay trying to bring Warzone up at least like three times too.
1: <laughs> and these shows would just like never wind up happening. No, never. I remember we saw um Dirge played CBGB's once. I remember it was uh with Against the Grain and IDK which are like some forgotten nineties bands. I totally remember I loved it. I remember against the Grain to play with Madball because Rob Kabula was in against the Grain at the time. But he yeah, you up... got... against the Grain did play Toronto though at was an it was. Elmo show, right? With Madball. Yeah. Oh that Madball show. Okay, so yeah. yes. I convinced Noel I'm like these guys should play, they're great, you know what I mean? And like and that was a full circle moment from seeing them at CBs and wanting to, you know, hopefully get more people into them at the time. And I really liked that full length back then. But uh I remember seeing Rabies at that show and just asking him and he's just like, you know, oh, you know, everyone always had the excuse Oh, we tried but we couldn't get over the border but i think a lot of the bands back then didn't try because it was a daunting ordeal you know what i mean you mm-hmm. didn't really have the wits to kind of clean yourself up and cross the border in a you know civil fashion most of these dudes were like you know, <laughs> turn it around send it back so, well you hear stories about
0: bands trying to cross with like weapons or just like ungodly amounts of cash
1: yes yeah. like, <laughs> you can't do that <laughs> one of the best times was uh pulling teeth no wait, no, it was Day Morning. Day Morning played in Chicago, and um, we had this genius idea to put all of our merch into the guitar cabinets, and then we put the screws back in. And we're like, "Ha ha ha! They'll never figure this out." Let's toss the <laughs> screwdrivers. We'll pick up some screwdrivers when we're in Chicago. We get to Chicago, nobody has a screwdriver, <laughs> so all the merch is just stuck in the guitar <laughs> when we play. That's awesome. So, so or, on, sorry. oh, I was just saying there was another time when we just all oh, we wore all our merch. It was Dude, like, all well, the door, we're just like uh, how's it going you know like, <laughs> yeah. so we were definitely willing to try anything yeah well it was
0: that was like you'd hear these things like oh yeah if you stick it in your cab they're not going to find it or if you all wear different shirts they're not going to find it or right you just hope and pray that that was the time that you weren't
1: going to get pulled in and have everything <laughs> come out of the cabinet or come out of your body that's part of why I moved. You know, I just got sick of the, of the struggle. I was like, you know what? If I'm just on the other side, I think my life would be a whole lot easier and I can do more things that I want to do. And that was, that was a huge, huge role in me leaving. Did Day of Morning and Dirge overlap at all? Or did you kind of do like a hard stop and did you guys switch to doing Day of Morning? No, there was a hard stop in between Dirge and Day of Morning because we had gotten into a bad van accident. We were on tour out east and uh, far in Quebec and we hit a deer or swerved to miss a deer. Sorry and ended up rolling the van, and JR drummer ended up losing a finger it was it was it was real bad holy shit and you know we took some time off to just kind of like you know regroup get ourselves together and then when we came back we're like you know like as I had mentioned earlier we were still kind of figuring things out when we were in dirge but by day and morning's time we knew what we wanted to do you know and uh we're like just start clean slate you know what I mean let's start this new band and take what we know and kind of roll with it and that's kind of why gave it wings, you know, right out the gate. At the time, it was lawless. It was just kind of like, you know, how bad can I piss this dude off? Let's go. <laughs> that was kind of like the, the M.O., you know? It was also mean. Like, hardcore was, like,
0: kind of a mean thing in Toronto at that yeah. point. Every group was
1: mean to each other, and internally, everyone was mean to the, each other within yeah. each group. I think that's how we were raised i think it's a product of the time as i was mentioning you know being a dad now it's like i'm take the total opposite approach like when i was a kid shit was mean you know what i mean your own parents would like this you would make fun of you or smack you up and it was like everybody was going through that at the time like in my circle you know like coming from like you know italian canadians at the time all our parents were off the boat they don't know any better you know what i mean so It was kind of like real harsh not uh open-minded I guess you know would be a way to put it it was kind of like you're supposed to fit in this box where you're supposed to you know stay at home get married get a job move out have kids repeat and I didn't want to do that I wasn't interested I left home at an earlier age and I was like I'm fucking out of here I just want to play in bands you know what I mean that was it and thankfully I figured it out along the way
0: and I think it's also becoming a parent and growing up you realize like you said earlier how insecure everybody was and like mm-hmm. the fact that everyone had to like You know you're not part of this thing you weren't here for this event or you're not part of this thing you weren't there for that and it was like everyone's psychological damage being played out kind of replicating that within this sort of like ultimately way cooler potentially amazing social thing that we kind of had going on
1: yeah it was like truly like an island of misfits like the the, the island of unwanted toys you know but yeah I'm glad it's not like that anymore because like, you know, anyone that waxes nostalgic about, oh, those were the good old days. You really had to earn it. It's just like, nah, it sucked, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> being able to like talk to anybody about anything now is like such a, such a better flex. I like that. I like that way better. It's way more my speed. It's give me a chance to really be the person I am versus the person I thought I had to be to survive, you know, because it's brutal. You know, yeah, yeah it's like it's coming at you at all times. You always have to be ready, like mentally sharp to be able to be like defend yourself verbally or otherwise. And now she's just, just kind of like, all right, sure, there's room for everybody. And, and strong is not jumping on every show anymore. Oh my gosh, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm in the home of strong Intention now. I'm in Maryland, and uh, they're from Hagerstown. <laughs> uh, they might I gotta admit, be- you know what I mean? Is I can't knock the hustle. It was it, it was funny that they would always appear on everything, but they were guys just trying to do it like everybody else, and they just you know figured out a way to make it work. So yeah, I, I can't. You know, and that first seven inch was pretty good. It was, uh, it was,
0: uh, not actually. I'm not gonna lie, I like the second seven inch way more than that first one when they kind of changed E-G-H. the sound.
1: The, the split with everybody gets hurt, or the actual, like, second,
0: the 7-inch? actual second one when they became like a tragedy kind of worship band, the failure it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good shit. <laughs> the one I remember going to see them and buying the basketball jersey at mm-hmm. the show at the 360. So
1: that was, the... oh, yeah, everyone yeah. had that jersey, that, yeah, had that, jersey. Had that jersey, and uh. I remember we were supposed to stay with Warzone J because we were supposed to play with strong attention in London one time, and Warzone J lied about us being allowed to stay at his house, so we had to sleep in the van, parked outside of his house. And somehow, you know, it just came synonymous with strong attention after that. Everything was strong attention's fault, even though there's a direct correlation between the two. I just remember being at the time, being like, it's all fucking strong attention's fault, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, no. It's like, you know it's like, i I respect everything they've done. It's like, they, they work hard just like anybody else, you know? I remember seeing Left 4 Dead at one of those... It was one of the shows Warzone was supposed to play. <laughs> yeah, the African right. Cultural Center. It, uh, no, this was at 360. This was may, might have been the last ones. And it okay. wasn't with Beckman. It was with uh, Christian like, McMaster playing instead of Jeff. And and, like, and Joel Fisher head. lineup, right? Joel Fisher was on the other guitar, I think? Yeah, on the very end. Yeah. And uh, it was almost a swarm at that point. And, uh, you know, Callahan had his cowboy hat and just being fucking floored. And I was like, this is on fucking real That Left 4 Dead... The second, like the seven inch to split with ochre, hate breed under the knife. Like that shit was like just fucking such a heat. hit me. Like that that shit hit, you know, that that's what I wanted to do. And, uh you know, and it was kind of like intimidating. Chris was a well liked guy and he was like a picture in the scene at the time. And we were like, I said, with these fucking dorks. But like, I just remember uh, seeing him at a dystopia show. And uh he's like, you're, you're in that band, right? And I was like, oh, geez. And then he proceeds to drop his pants and pee because he's in a urinal next to me. And he, like, just drops his pants and takes a whiz in the urinal next to me and with his pants completely down, just talking to me. And I'm just like, this is weird. Uh, I'm going to go now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like, but I remember, yeah, he, he's he's a great dude. We've remained friends this whole time. You know, I did, uh, I brought Left Fred. I was the first person to bring Left 4 Dead over here years later. Only show out of the U.S. at the time. I mean, out of Canada into the U.S., forgive me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was a huge, huge. All the shit was like just such a, it's like a tapestry. You know what I mean? You're weaving together all this great, these great moments in Toronto and Southern Ontario history. And it kind of laid the groundwork for everything that came after it when I moved.
0: Yeah. So I guess so Day of Morning toured, though, right? Like you
1: guys did uh, quite a bit. You guys toured the States. Yeah. Like yeah. We toured a lot. And uh, we actually broke up on the eve of a full US tour. Um, our drummer had some other stuff come up and uh you know a month and a half was down the drain all of a sudden i had nothing to do and i had to stay at my stupid job that i didn't want to be at anymore and of all stupid things to happen i get an email from rick to life that's like yo we looking for guitar player to go to europe and i'm like it's probably worded like that too you know and i was like (laughs) okay you know what i mean i'm already got i got nothing else going on why not and i replied and these at the time were just generic like spams to like, you know, promote whatever back to basics records he was doing at the time. And I just wrote him back. I was like, hey, I know all these songs. I could learn him on the bus ride down there. Let's do it. And he wrote back. He's like, all right. So, you know, that was it, man. I fucking got on a Greyhound bus with $300, my guitar and a backpack full of clothes. And that was fucking it. Sayonara. I left. That was, the, that was the end. That was the end of the, ch- the Canada chapter. That was it
0: because i don't 25 to life i know is supposed to play here a couple times i
1: don't think coming corrected right but like but you had met him before this in some we way because no? you know uh, yeah and i gotta you know clarify that i always differentiate the rick of then versus the rick of now it's two different entities to me it's like a twin peaks thing where the real rick disappeared right. <laughs> another rick appeared so it's purely speaking in a past context but you know they despite all his business shortcomings there was no better guy to like get the word out about any band you know and he used to like get day morning stuff out dirge stuff out everywhere so we would always be trading and he was notorious for like not sending you what you traded i'd be like yeah here's a box of day morning cds send me some 25 to life shit and he's like nah but i got these fat nuts seven inches and uh all this other shit. And I'm just, you
0: know? i will say fat nuts is one of the most underrated back to basics bands. i will agree but it was a hard sell you know what i mean back then be, yes like, it was you know but well that's all that back to basic stuff it's crazy now that all those records are collectible and like so and many actually, people.
1: yeah they fit in today's musical landscape it's kind of weird isn't it yeah it's it's, it's great I you the were ahead of curve you were so ahead of the curve on this shit <laughs> but I, you know and i had a distro of my own and i used to like distro at shows and shit so it was like you know, we were in, we knew of each other. I wouldn't call our friends. You know, it's like, we just knew each other from trading records. I used to trade with, with Jamie from and I used to trade with like everybody back then. That's what you did. So, you know, by the time I hit him up, I guess there was a little bit more weight that I wasn't just some random guy that, you know, I was a guy that he would depend on being there that I would actually show up. And I showed up, you know, I was on a Greyhound. I rolled into Baltimore. I showed up and he didn't. <laughs> 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 I'm, just, I'm in Baltimore, right? And I'm in the train station, the bus station, forgive me. And, uh, it was after like a 30 hour ride because the Greyhound doesn't go straight to Baltimore. It went through every stop in Pennsylvania, right? I was <laughs> like, I had one tape that had the Weezer Green album on one side <laughs> and some other show, the other rap mix on the other side. <laughs> I had to listen to that for 30 something hours in my Walkman, but that was it. And got to Baltimore and he didn't show up. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, there's no cell phones at the time. Got my backpack, I got my guitar, and I got 300 bucks. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck to do. And I went to find a payphone and I called him. and He's like, oh, oh, you're actually coming. And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm here. (laughs) He's like, I'll be right there. And, you know, lo and behold, like an hour later, he shows up. And that that chapter of my life began, you know, it was was actually pretty cool. What was it like? Because you're like obviously in a band with people
0: that you've been friends with the whole time when you're on tour. And then all of a sudden you're on tour with a legendarily intense, uh, person and a uh at every any stage i you know pretty intense and then here you are in europe with like a bunch of strangers
1: it was you know for me i've always been about music music's always been the reason why i do this i love it so i wanted to play the songs well that's all i really cared about you know i mean And, and get to see places i've never been i wanted to see the world and play music that was kind of it and you know rick and i got along for the most part you know he was a funny dude he was like you know i used to live on his couch and uh, the way it worked was, I lived on his couch, which was locked off from the rest of the house. So I didn't have a bathroom. I didn't have anything. I just had a, like a living room with a couch. <laughs> and if I left, he would lock the door, and I would have to find oh, him to get back in the house. So if I had to brush my teeth, I would have to go to Dunkin' Donuts and brush my teeth. Come back and fucking pray that he would like unlock the door and let me back in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he probably half the time he wouldn't. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, what am I gonna do? I would go play bingo, like with the old old ladies down the street. I'm just, I had nothing to do. I was locked out, right? The Van was gone. I was fucked. There was nothing to do, and uh, you know. And then all that magic happened on the weekend. We would start rolling out to all these like weird places in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, and, like just all these small towns where like kids were like, "Wow, someone's coming." He was smart because he he didn't do the big cities back then. He was very into we're going to go to fucking all these small towns that nobody goes to that's going to be the bread and butter, you know, and it was, we would play all these really weird places in Indiana and like, you know, like I said, in Pennsylvania, anywhere, anywhere that would have us really South Carolina. And it was always real fun. And like, you know, there's never any money in it, but that was also the time where I was doing that. That's where I met the dudes that eventually do pulling teeth and slum lords with, because those dudes were also just cutting their teeth just trying to play Right. They're like, Hey, here's a band that actually tours. I'm just gonna do it and see what happens, you know? And that's like all those friendships. That was the nucleus. Everything that came after it was because of that. So I gotta give Rick credit, despite, you know, it's the rick of the Rick of yesterday for uh kind of being a linchpin in my life at that point and setting off all these new friendships and relationships that you know kind of defined the next 20 plus years of my life for sure. Did you
0: know, uh, did you meet Jeff Perlin like that time when breakdown played at Shanghai?
1: No, but I remember them walking Warzone J to the ATM. <laughs> 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 I met them later. It was uh, my stint with Rick didn't last long. I was in the band for about a year and a half. We did Europe. We did a bunch of stuff, and I realized I didn't like being in somebody else's band. You know, I was like, "This is cool." It gave me a lot of experience, but it was like, "This is not what I want to do." You know, and uh, the dude the next step up had another band called Wake Up Cold we were going to europe and i was like they needed a guitar player to go and i was like you know i'll, I'll go you just if you pay for the ticket i don't need anything else you know what i mean i'll, I'll, I'll ride for free just, and i did another europe tour with those dudes with jr and you know all, all those dudes looked out they were really great but when it time, came time and came back i was like i gotta start my own band I'm, you know i'm not really feeling doing this anymore and i saw perlin at a show at the sidebar yeah and i brought up that show where they walked Wars on jada the atm machine <laughs> right we're just like talking and him and scott that plays drums and stout and doug that plays bass and stout and i'm like you know we should get together and and, and jam i got an idea for this band i really wanted it to be like you know just like 80s hardcore all like the, the like the early 80s new york stuff crossed with the late 80s new york stuff and just kind of not really much metal to it and um he was game so we we met up and we, we we jammed did some black flag songs and just fucked around and that's kind of how Slum Lords came about it, it was that easy we were all like real like simpatico with our sense of humor and just general weirdness you know what i mean so it was like i love jack just like one of my, my favorite people i've ever had a chance to be in a band with or be friends with he's hilarious funniest dude hands down yeah like i think that's the thing is
0: uh you know obviously very intimidating kind of presence and certainly mm-hmm. on stage but a hilarious lyricist. Like, oh really God, writing like, some awesomely funny songs.
2: And his
1: banter is like second to none. Yeah, yeah. Like, when he would say shit like, this goes out to the frigid eras of hardcore. Sub-Zero. And I was just like, you know, like, it's just, it was just like he, he was like, you know, dad jokes before dad jokes were cool, you know, he was just dropping them. I remember we played with Terror once in No Warning, and he just shouted out Terror and let out this eagle screech that was like a minute long. Like, way longer than it should have been, right? And everyone's just like,
0: a hilarious band like the vibe was so cool and it was a great time kind of that period for hardcore because it felt like all the walls were kind of breaking down between all the different scenes and like mm-hmm. there were these shows where all these different sorts of bands were playing together and you could have cole world on tour with iron age or sex vid and then you could also yeah. have you know that that gut instinct like you because of you we got to play with gut instinct
1: you know like yeah <laughs> like it was the walls breaking the down version, but, you know i think it was like uh much like we had talked about before it was the vision we all realized when we were younger that a bigger network of people that are friends just because they like hardcore you know and you're able to be like hey if you like hardcore and that's cool we don't even have to like the same thing we're all on the same team you know and slumlords was uh lucky to be around during that posse numbers era i like to call it you know we played the posse mm-hmm. numbers played uh Sync with Cali. We we did we did we, went to, we managed to go to Europe. We did a record on Locking Out. We did like some pretty cool stuff. slumlords is like a weird band because it's kind of like falling with the beatdown resurgence that's going on now. A lot of people forgot about the slumlords era in Baltimore hardcore. It was like a, a window where it, you know if there was a slumlord show, people were coming from all over the East Coast, and it was guaranteed to be a party. That show would fucked up. You know we put you guys in Cold World and and, and We did that little Cut Instinct mini set in there. It was like you know it was awesome. That was the norm. That was like what we would do and it was just like it was a great way to just bring people together and the whole reason was just have a good time and nothing more you know there was never like a ulterior motive with that one we just wanted to party with our friends and everybody was our friend you know as long as you weren't a dick it's cool it's interesting when you look at this era
0: of hardcore as being like you said like the the influence of like kind of baltimore and i guess dc lumping the two areas in together like with the beatdown stuff also with like all these bands kind of vibing and trying to sound like '86 mentality now, or, mm-hmm. or you know the the turnstile phenomena. Like that's like really like the sonic center of a lot of the stuff that's happening now. Is that sort of like
1: Baltimore stuff from that that starts in that period? I agree, and it's really wild to think that like if you told me back in the Warzone J days that you know like 20 plus years from now everyone's going to try to sound like bulldoze, <laughs> like you know sign me up. <laughs> So it sounds like Valhalla, you know. <laughs> yeah, be there, and it's like you know. But yeah, so it's always just been a really great caliber of bands that came from this area. I mean, the East Coast in general. That's why I gravitated towards here. But like you know, Stout '86 mentality. I mean, if you take it even further back, to next step up or Gut Instinct. It's like Baltimore always had like a real meat and potatoes, like real caveman. And I use the word dumb, but I don't mean like stupid. Like they were just like, the riffs were dumb. You know I mean? There was like real plotting and like hard and like just fucking, and then, you know, and I I think that just, it's in its truest form and authenticity is what resonates with everybody. It doesn't feel contrived. So people are able to take influence from that and build on that and do something. It's a real stable foundation to do something cool and go off of that. So I like seeing those bands get their due. It means a lot. You know, it's like the team you grew up loving, seeing them finally like get, get their day, you know? Yeah and it's I feel like there's
0: like a lot of uh style jumping that happens in hardcore and it's very trendy you know mm-hmm. and, and and stuff but like I can honestly say you have been repping that stuff in your distro when like you would get cracked on in hardcore not crack, like physically cracked up but people like you know like there was kind of like a snobbery
1: oh, yeah. towards a lot of that stuff I mean like it's funny cuz if you listen to day of morning now and you know it's like i said before it was like my records any record i do is like find it when you find it or if you don't find it at all that's okay too but it's like day morning was like 30 years ahead of most of the bands that are like are doing that now but most people don't even know and probably won't ever know but i've loved that shit a long time you know what i mean and i'll always rep it i always love like crossing over of like beat down and like death metal and like just real aggressive evil cauldron stuff you know and i always thought that's what has been in my bread and butter. It never deviated. Even the last record I did with N-Rain, like 30 years later, it's still that. You know, It's just kind of like what I like doing.
0: You have your Maryland's Vitamins Loving side too, though. Don't deny that. You did
1: a cover of that. Dude, they're like my favorite Toronto punk band of all time. Best. <laughs> See, yeah, their last show was like incredible. I'm a combo. I still remember it vividly. I can shut my eyes and still remember like the energy in the air. It was like unlike anything I'd ever seen before.
0: It's interesting how there's like um, a real... You know, and once again, I say Toronto, but it obviously, I mean like surrounding area. But there's like a real Toronto band phenomena where like bands would be just big locally, and like you can't really appreciate how big some of these bands were. Like Maryland's Vitamins was so like you're talking about
1: that last show. That was like an epic event. I think there was a, there was like a newspaper article about that when that yeah. happened. Oh, it was magic. But a lot of the bands, and it's a greater thing than just underground music don't really carry traction over into the U S or other countries. Canada was like an isolated bubble for the most part. You know what I mean? We had our own everything. We had our own radio, our own CanCon, Canadian content. And like, you know, like it was really championing, like, you know, the supporting of the Canadian artists, but at the same time, they weren't integrating it with the rest of the world. So it was very isolated and weird. It was very pockets. Well, like, there were certain bands though, right? Like you think like grade chokehold,
0: Propagandi, yes uh cryptopsy i guess if you lump them in somehow just like underground music wise um like were bands that seemed like they had
1: big followings in the u.s back in the 90s yeah another one that is interesting it, that falls into that bubble world is this bunch of fucking goofs yeah i mean epic yeah. i've seen like you know monumental bfg shows but like no one's south of the border like even they like, who what like i'm amazed to hear they big abortion still play and they're one of my favorites so it's like you know, seeing like that they're still going and they're still playing shit in the U.S. is great, but like, yeah, Canada was its own like whole ecosystem, almost, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think that border did like you know, as much as you're saying like bands were intimidated to kind of cross from the U.S. I think Canadian bands too, Absolutely. and the idea you know Canadian punk band trying to tour across Canada as their like touring thing, it's like that drive's gonna,
1: you know, unless you're in a bus, it's 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 a it's a gnarly drive to try and do over and over again. We did it. Dirge did it, and this was before the internet, man. It was like, it was brutal. You know what I mean? Going across it was like, wow. Like, where do you play? You know, it, but it was like uh, that thing you play in Regina, Saskatoon. I still hear from people like I was at that show, and there was like seven people at that show. So it goes like, to show like how small <laughs> and like what a big deal it was. And I remember uh, Callahan telling me that Countdown to Oblivion. I remember they they went out east and they totally hit the Maritimes and hit those places that nobody had hit at the time, and it was just like. Canada was is there, was there for the taken You know what I mean? All they needed was someone to show up. And some of our best shows were in those places. Like Day Morning in Halifax is still like one of the best shows I've ever played in my life. It's just because nobody went out there, you know. Who who did you play with in Halifax back then? We played with a band called Equation of State.
2: Oh, I kinda remember. I, mean, that. I remember this.
1: It was this guy Ian, Ian Hart, He yeah. booked the shows back then. And it was his band, and they were like a Screamo an abolition type band. And uh yeah, you know what I mean? It was that easy of me just writing this dude I never knew. And it was like, hey, we want to play Halifax. Can you make it happen? He's like, okay. And that was it, you know? That's that's all it took back then.
0: Yeah. And it's it's interesting because you could do that anywhere in the world. Like, if you could get
1: there, you could find a kid that was going to do your show. Interestingly enough, I think the logic also applies to other parts of the world. Because, like, when Day Morning started coming into the U.S., we would play real isolated places like, uh, like Poughkeepsie, New York. Or, uh, you know, mass that we play with like bands like Dissolve and Overcast and Canderia, who at the time, you know, were like, we'd we play these shows and they were huge. People were like just going, Mantle, right? And I'm like, then you see these bands outside of their local region. and It's just like, you know, seeing an, whatever band playing, it's just, it's just a normal, normal, normal event, you know? And it just made me hip to like the, the regional magic that comes with like ha- being really popular in a certain area and working it because i remember overcast played like who's emma and i think there was like 10 people there yeah it was it was fun, sick don't get me wrong but like i remember seeing them like you know like people just... it's the same thing with upstate new york and all the troy bands they were like it was like an anomaly they were like headlining over the the touring bands you know it was just it was, it was wild the power of the regional was a big thing back then but And there was, was
0: regional there. And, and, and like regional sounds right like bands like had like areas had certain types of music that would hit in that area and like these bands would get huge. Like I remember hearing like about Furio Five and how big Furio Five were in their hometown mm-hmm. and the football yeah. team
1: would like go on the field to Furio Five. Yeah. Same with E Town. And I remember seeing E Town play in Buffalo with Haybreed. and it was like, you know, it was not what I had imagined. They were great. Don't get me wrong. They played perfectly, but like, you know, years later when you if if, if YouTube existed and you could cross-reference what a hometown show would look like versus what that Buffalo show look like, it would be, be night and day, you know. I guess Hatebreed's also the first band
0: that was kind of, like, able to break out of that regional bubble and go, you know, I guess Madball, obviously, but New York's so different. Like, New York's got, like, yeah. a, a built-in branding. But, like, Hatebreed was, like, the first band to kind of break out of that regional scene and just go international
1: and take over. I loved Hatebreed. Remember the first time they finally made it to Toronto? There was, like, a <laughs> like cancellations. Yes. And they up and everybody was, And you know, it's my favorite. 2 a.m. 2 a.m. They showed up that day. Yeah. and it was like my favorite era because it was the pre-positive still like kind of scummy version of Hatebreed where it wasn't clean, wasn't refined yet, you know, anything goes and uh, you know just had like Lou Boulder in the band and stuff, rest in peace and it was like, it was the best dude, it was so sick, it was just like and everybody, you know what I mean, it was like one of those legendary shows where everybody, everyone's on the same page when it came mm-hmm. to Hatebreed everyone was there, they loved, loved them, you know, to have a good time And uh, They had played before uh, when they played with the Voorhees at Who's Emma yeah, no, was it a? Yeah, it, I thought it was three hundred and sixty. It three hundred and sixty. It means three hundred and sixty. I didn't go but, to the uh, show, but no, me neither. But I knew of it because I, I did my homework. But Simon yeah. Harvey did that show. Who did Simon Harvey? Oh yeah.
0: yeah, which is funny to think of him doing a breed show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um no, it was like you know, they were instrumental, I think, in bridging the two worlds because all of a sudden it was like the US, bands were started coming to the U.S. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it was a lot to do with that John Finberg and Noel connection. Because all those bands started working with Finberg's agency in the U.S., and then Noel was bringing them over. And you know, all these bigger bands were playing, and it was like it was great. You know, people got to see Bloodlet. You know what I mean? People got to see like uh, it's another really great one. The Canderia started coming and popping off. You know what I mean? candia became like a headlining band. What when you got when King Diamond came, and you guys opened for King Diamond? No, we didn't open for King Diamond. Oh, I thought
0: you guys opened, or you
1: know, you did this. So, got them to do a sample or something, right? No, we hired. We got hired to to just drive him from the hotel to the uh to the venue, right? In the in the day morning van, and uh, dude, like I had said earlier, you know, I mean, I was a fucking prick when I was a, a, a younger younger version of myself. I deserved to be smacked. But uh, <laughs> I was just like, decided <laughs> I was going to fucking punish this poor dude's entourage, right? And I had <laughs> no questions. I'm like, all right, the van breaks down on the side of the road. Wheel pops off the axle. Only person can get get out and help is King Diamond, but he's in full makeup. Doesn't do it. And the handler just like just kicked me out of my own van. They drove my van to pick up King Diamond. And I had to just like wait. Just like nah. That happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, just, just dumb shit. You know what I mean? Just fucking come from that world. But so you know, I never got to meet King Diamond. Shane as a coalition against Shane fame did. That's why he was on the cover of the record with King Diamond. Oh, that's like, what I'm thinking of. I'm yeah, it's a fuck you me to me and Mike because he's just like ah, you know, yeah, up you guys, and then we're like we went up you we put it on the record cover, you know. So so it's like a constant like <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh, but he ourselves. But I did get my, my one jab in when he wanted honey for his tea. I got him like the teddy bear honey. I thought that was fun <laughs> My kids love that story. They're like, oh, it's always the time you gave King Diamond the, the teddy bear honey. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, all right, you know. But didn't he want a ton of ice too, or like dry
0: ice? It was at the uh, elmo, yeah. and there was like, you know, it's like a once again, probably a low period for King Diamond playing the, yeah, it was the Voodoo.
1: The Voodoo Tour, I think. I yeah
0: remember. Yeah. And
1: it was uh but like, you know, a classic show. Twisted Sister played the Gasworks, I remember too, around then. You know, we played the gas Durch had played the Gasworks on one of those shows I had mentioned before where we like hauled our all our gear on the subway. We played the <laughs> gas a few times. And uh it was, yeah, you know, we came. Like Jason, our drummer, his older brother was in all, a lot of bands that were like Toronto bands at the time. Like Wire Alive was one of them that would play places like Gasworks or the Marquee out in Scarborough. Oh, yeah. So like we that's where we cut our teeth. That's where we, you know, that's a, that was our point of entry. And yeah, it's kind of sad that none of those places are there. I was just over visiting over uh, the holidays last year and like none of Toronto. None of I was showing my wife around. I'm like, none of the stuff is like here. that was here. You know, that used to be there. That used to be there. Callahan's still there if you look yeah. but uh, it's like it's it's Charles the city that hates its history yeah and laments that there's no history here best venue of all time for me do you remember the concert hall the Masonic, the Masonic Temple absolutely it was a dream to get to play there and uh we were obsessed and we figured out a scam with the uh, remember those supernova Battle of the bands yeah we played one of those shows because it was at the concert hall and how many tickets you sold for these guys dictated your position on the bill, right? And they would give you 100 tickets. And if you sold 100 tickets, you got first choice of the bill. And I'm like, we sold 98 tickets. And they're like, oh my God, you guys killed it. I'm like, our singer's not here yet. He'll bring the tickets and the money. You know, he said there's two left and there's 98 tickets sold. He's like, all right, cool. You know, you guys are in this slot. So we, you know, we get prime prime booking. It was like, you know, 10 o'clock at night at Concert Hall in a room full of other, other, other kids and bands and whatnot come the end of the night i'm like oh fuck you know i, I misunderstood he sold two tickets <laughs> and 98 tickets Here you go here's 40 bucks <laughs> you know <laughs> only time i ever paid to play but i had to make it happen so i really wanted to play at the fucking concert hall and we did it you know you have to have sharp scruples to make it happen i think i only saw one show at the
0: concert hall back in the day like i eventually got to play there when it was mtv but like i saw it um Project Nine with Gypsy Soul. Oh, my God, man. Project
1: Nine was a weird <laughs> band, dude. Remember the, the dude with the big, the big necklace? Yes. <laughs> Small world, because the guy that would master the Day of Morning records, Roland Rainier, was in Project Nine. I think he was the drummer. That's like, awesome. I'm like, I remember seeing them with Mr. Bungle at the opera house, and I was just like, it went over my head. You know what I mean? This shit's too weird for me. I, I couldn't really grasp it at the time, but I always appreciate it. Well, that's what you're saying. Like, you know, like t- day of morning now. Like the
0: the sounds kind of caught up to what the sound you guys were going for back then. I would love to kind of hear Project Nine now because, yeah, at the time I was like, "What the fuck is this?" But right, yeah. Now I wonder if it would be something that I would have caught up to and be like, "Oh, this is fucking incredible. This
1: is like really a mature incredible. lens." You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a band called Plastic Witches. Back then in the '90s, that broke up on stage in their second song. Or was just like, "Whoa, this is like the weirdest shit I've ever seen." And I've always been obsessed with like finding their demo, just to like kind of like satisfy that ish, like you're you're saying, you know, and just being like, I wonder what 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 you know through today's lens, what this would look like, what this would sound like, you know, and it was it would be cool. Well,
0: that's that also brings up this thing that I'm always kind of obsessed with now. It's like true rarity, like stuff that like just doesn't exist, you know. Like there's like people that be like, oh, the rarest records, like this Beatles Butcher Baby sleeve, right, or this thing. It's right. like no, but the People held on to those. People collected those. Like these <laughs> demos,
1: no one kept it. No, and it's amazing. You know, it's like a an attitude that I I, I was exposed to. That I really appreciated. Was you remember that band I.R.E. from Montreal? That was Absolutely, backhand. yeah. backhand I was really interested in uh, you know reissuing their stuff because they're one of my favorite bands at the time. And I hit up Radwan and asked them if they would be interested in doing it. And his attitude about it was, "Nah." He goes, "Thank you, but that, unless you were there." You know what I mean? It's a time and place thing. And I really love that. It was kind of like, yeah, I was there. I got to see it, you know? And that's the rarity that you're speaking of. It's like people never know what it's like to be in someone's living room and have Ira roll up with like 20 marsh stacks and just like fucking destroy them. But it makes and you, up. and it makes you kind of like, you know, it
0: makes you at one time, like, uh, like just have a completely different appreciation for someone that as a young person is like, no, what we're doing now is important and valid and I'm going to build like a, a, not an empire in a sort of an evil way, but like build an empire around it. Like like people like Ian McKay or, mm-hmm. or Fat Mike, like people that believed in their own shit so much that they like made it important, you know. And obviously they're making great music,
1: mm-hmm. but at
0: the same time, they also believed in it and told us all that they were making great music and put the records out there and make sure that stuff's kept in print. And it's not a time and a place thing, it becomes part of the canon.
1: Yeah, I like both sides of the coin. I think both the whole weight, you know what I mean? It's cool that there's like you know regional phenomena that you, if you were there, you'll remember it. And if not, say la vie. But it's also cool that there's some stuff that, yeah, you know, it's like Dwiz also done a really great job of that with the integrity records. He's made sure they're in print for generations, and generations, you know what I mean? There's always new generations discovering those records, and yeah, it's great. Well,
0: integrity is such a weird one, too, because I think it's also the obscurity of it, too. Like the fact that it was always accessible, but the fact that it was always there's weird versions of this thing or there's like this one thing that's out of print or the song that no one's heard or a mix of some song or like. But yet, like you're saying, it was always accessible enough that like you could kind of get in
1: to the mystery. And depending on how far you wanted to go after that was up to you. I think it comes down to like your artist statement where it's like, you know, sometimes you just want to do something to do it and that's it. You're done. Wipe your hands. And then other people really want to build a legacy off of it. You know what I mean? And both of them serve equal purpose and value. And I think it's just, you know, I think there's room, there's room for both. I think it's cool. Yeah. It's interesting. I find like when, when,
0: and this is because of you that this all happened when Jeff from cold, life came on the podcast, I found his motivation behind doing cold, life just so different than, you know, someone like Dwid's motivation for doing integrity mm-hmm. where one is sort of this sort of like, you know, still like ultimately awesome and fucked up, but like artistic expression that you're sharing and putting out in this world and defined aesthetic. And one is almost like being done because
1: you have to, like there has to be some sort of fucking girl, like you know, it's like, yeah, yeah I don't know anything else. Like, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, uh, it's what's also interesting in parallel lanes. They both had long-standing careers where, in mm-hmm. twenty twenty-three, both bands are still talked about and loved. You know, mm-hmm. despite and going cool. different avenues. Yeah, and neither one was like
0: ever critically lauded, even in punk and hardcore during their their day mm-hmm. at the time. Like, they was it always had you know like regional fans and always huge. And Re- Integrity had definitely like a, I think a larger international presence even back
1: then, but it was still so cult-like. They both had the mythos of, like, being in the pre-internet era where it was all secondhand hearsay and stories, right? And it was like, oh, I heard, like, Frank pulled three guns out on this dude, or I heard, like, you know, like, this huge brawl fucking burst out at St. Andrew's <laughs> Hall. Dwayne and it has like, a bastard sword that he brings on tour. <laughs> There's never any way to really, like, verify this stuff, and it was just, yeah. you just relied on those rumors, and you kind of, like, tailored your own version of what you wanted it to be and i think that's cool you know i think it's just kind of it made it a little more special it's like fan fiction <laughs> yeah yeah and it was great because when these bands would
0: occasionally make it up to toronto it was like seeing them so removed from that element like to see yeah. stigmata in troy would be a completely different experience
1: than seeing them oh two in the afternoon on a tuesday <laughs> that was so bizarre that was one of the most bizarre shows i've ever seen and uh cold's life when they finally played toronto was at the cathedral yeah on the donation tour I remember and it was like you know most of the room was pretty much Windsor show rolled out you know and it was like it was cool but it wasn't like you know seeing them out that way it was like a completely different vibe you know yeah yeah it
0: was like a unique kind of experience getting to see and there's like and because like you're saying Jay and Noel and yourself and these bands would come up here like you would yeah. get a chance to see a lot of these bands that
1: you know didn't necessarily play all the hot spots absolutely It it was just great, you know, as as a fan of those records and those bands, just getting to see them. And also, it was a big deal, A, getting to share the band with, like, our peers and hopefully turn people on to this band so they'll come back, but also, you know, make the band want to come to our city and, like, fucking, you know, see our bands and be like, maybe they'll see one of the bands, they liked one of the opening bands, and they'll invite them to play somewhere else. That's kind of how it worked back then, and it was always cool, you know? Yeah, like, I think it's like... uh like buying the fat nuts
0: seven inch out of your distro, but then also having like Simon Harvey sell me the bastard CD out of his distro. Yeah. And then having like whatever garage rock records, they've got a full blast that they're introducing people to. And then stuff at who's Emma, the, like the ebullition stuff at who's Emma. Like it felt like it was a small enough place that we got to sample all this different types of hardcore where in other places you might
1: have to stick to a scene a little bit more. We were really lucky to have Uzema. I mean, like, I try to explain that to, like, you know, my friends now, because, like, there was really nothing like it, you know what I mean? There was an air of, like, pompousness to it, Dude, don't get me wrong. There was very, like, you know, like, clandestine, like, you know, you could only know so much. We know all the hardcore secrets about what you're like, la- you know, what's cool, and I'm just like, but yeah, you know, I was able to get a Morse record, and, like, all this cool shit, I was able to, like, my big thing is my girlfriend at the time volunteered there, the same one that fucking made me miss integrity, but I... <laughs> I would go hang out when she worked there and I had free reign over the whole store to listen to whatever I wanted to and be able to be like, oh, I can't wait because I have enough money to buy that Moorza record or like, you know, this is what I want to buy next. And it's like, it was like, I'm almost like having a library at your fingertips. Just like cool shit, you know? Yeah. Acme for the first time in there. And like, it was it was, it was magical. And it was, the, I think the part of the magic too is because we still
0: had these physical spaces, you could have shows there. There could be art in- galleries there there could be like people meeting up in these spaces and this was like available to anyone and everyone and it feels like that is not the case anymore like i can't think of too many places that certainly like who's that operate that freely where you just call up be like hey is there a show there tonight no okay i'm gonna put a
1: show on yeah that's where i met mike too mike mike from your band it was, a, yep. was also a desk jockey over there and uh I mean, in Baltimore, when I moved here, we had a place called Charm City Art Space, which was a s- similar aesthetic, but it didn't have the record store part. So the introducing to music element was removed, and I think that was a big deal. What made who I'm a- I'm a- so magical? You know what I mean? I'd go in there and talk to uh, remember that dude Noah. Was no Gaki, he, he was in the Power Violence band. Uh, yeah, Godzilla. Godzilla. Godzilla right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I can't believe I remember that. But uh, you know, just being like, oh yeah, you think that's cool? Well, check this out, <laughs> and like. It was just great. You didn't even have to know these guys, and they'd be like, "Well, you think that's cool? Check this out!" And like, it was always like a constant exchange of like, "Hey, I made you this tape. You might like some of this shit. Check it out." You know, and like, it was just. It's. I hate to be like you know old man waxing nostalgic, but that's a fucking thing that's never gonna happen again. You know that that era, that magic of hand to hand exchanging, and turning people on to shit, is just like from an era, a bygone era. It's just not a thing anymore, and it's sad because it was fucking it was cool.
0: Well, it's like. It's, I guess, the thing that happens when you have the death of manufacturing. Like, we had physical products. Like, you needed yes. to meet up to exchange these things, right? And, like, it wasn't necessarily a capitalist thing because, as you're saying, no one's making money doing any oh. of this shit, right? But there was this sort of, like, physical product being exchanged for cash thing that would happen, and it was, like, our own economies. Like, you could go there and then go to the vegan bakery buy yeah. something there and you can kind of like keep the money kind of within the community the market yeah
1: right yeah it was magical you know
0: yeah and it's that's the thing that i think it is you know i don't think we're net waxing nostalgic because i think it's just changed you know and there's like stuff that's certainly a lot easier like you're saying like if you didn't have that guy who ran the studio space that helped you guys do that cd or make a video and submit it to much music like who the fuck would have heard of you that
1: quickly, right? Like, yeah, but now you can do that yourself. (laughs) no problem. Anybody could, you know, you could just, yeah, just throw it online. And I think it's great, but it also has created like such an influx that it's impossible. It's like a constant tidal wave, you know what I mean? It's like fighting the ocean, as they say, where it's like, hey, I put out a record, here it goes. And then 20 other records just come (laughs) and topple it over, like within five (laughs) minutes, you know, it's just like, it's it's a different time and place for sure. I think it's also we don't have like so much of the culture
0: was magazine driven mm-hmm. back then and like review driven, yeah. right? So you'd have a longer shelf life or legs for a record because the magazine would come out kind of two months afterwards sometimes and you'd be reading about it in a zine and you're like, oh, that's
2: I a true got
1: it. lost art. Yeah. I was talking about that with the, when the Enrain record came out because, uh, there's a, a website called Aversion Online that like really does awesome reviews. And like they're able to write a review that'll make me want to listen to a record the way like, they describe it. There's like real good. And that's like a lost art because that's how we used to find out about stuff back then. You'd read like the very very distro magazine and you'd be like, you know, that's how I found out about Starkweather or like all these cool bands. They're like, Oh, if you like evil, like dark and metallic, this and that, this is what you know, you should check this out. And I did and seldom was disappointed. And the power of the printed word is just shot because people don't have the attention span for it anymore. It's just instant gratification. They'll click and listen to ten seconds. Maybe they'll listen to the rest, and maybe not. You know, it's like yeah. it's, just, it's a different approach. Yeah, you read those
0: catalogs like I, I probably still know the Victory magazine backwards to and
1: forwards. You remember the exactly. bloodlet description?
0: <laughs> no, now, now you caught me out.
1: No, I, I always, I I always tease them. I am always like <clears throat> if you if you if you're willing to spill blood. You're allowed to listen to these viridians, <laughs> and there was just like, yeah, we didn't write that, you know. <laughs> I'll never forget that because I'm like, what does, what does that mean? I have to hear this, you know. <laughs> like, I, think that, I think that's
0: also where I first I read Jamie saying that thing that I, I love to tease him about from Hatebreed, where he's like, uh, Hatebreed was inspired by Quicksand. I heard Quicksand and was like, and someone told me it was a hardcore band and i couldn't believe people were calling that shit hardcore so i wanted to make the most anti quicksand possible quicksand band possible oh yeah oh it's it's awesome like how just how competitively
1: inspiring everything was back then like you hated a band you're inspired i got to meet Tony victory integrity played in chicago when when i was still in the band and he had come out to the show it's the first time i'd met him and you know i've admired you know say what you want about the guy but like that victory records in the 90s was like you know it was like having bread in the house, you know what I mean? It was, it was a staple. So I got to, I go, I'm not going to waste your time. I just want to know about three records real quick. Integrity, systems overload. And he goes, too many solos. <laughs> and then I said, dead guy, fixation on a co-worker. And he goes, great record. Then i go, bloodlet Bloodlet, at Atheogen. And he looks at me and he goes, Florida Rednecks, fretless bass. And he just kind of like disappeared <laughs> in the background and that was it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I got this in a dollar bin in Portland. Uh this is the awake seven inch, right? Oh wow on, okay. on, on Skeen Records.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is
0: one of the ones on uh Purple Vinyl. And Victory distroed a hundred copies on Purple Vinyl mm-hmm. before its victory. And so inside there's a one-sheet for their new signing integrity, who are still oh, referred to wow. as a straight edge that. band. And then on the dust sleeve. The guy's written... Tony Victory has written Jeff Spiegel, who's the guy who owns Skeen Records, I Will Break Your Neck, Sinner. Whoa. And then there's a letter inside from Tony to the kid that ordered the 7-inch, explaining that how much he hates the dudes that run Skiing Records. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Sighed by him at the bottom. so of the best things I've ever found in a record store.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah, but these people were you're like, like folk heroes, like not even like, cause it's not necessarily heroes because it's punk, but at the same time, like you heard about some of these people so much. And like you're saying, there's no internet. So by the time, like even now, when you get to finally meet these people, you're like, Oh my God, like meeting Jeff for the first time, or like even talking to Dwid for the very first time,
1: like, right. It's just just like, Holy shit. Like so weird. I've, I've heard so many legends. I'm so glad to have met them later in life though. And not during the height of their powers where like, you know, they were almost obligated to be the persona that they were perceived to be. You know, I'm glad like you know get to know the real version of those dudes. It's just regular dudes, but but you're, yeah. you know, and I'm not
0: talking about those two guys in particular, but like in general, going back to like Rick, you've always been able to kind of work with people that are otherwise known as being difficult or feared or, uh you know spoken about in kind of hushed tones
1: in a way you know like even you did a mighty sphincter record. yeah you know it's someone once once, once called me the hardcore whisperer <laughs> which was funny because it's just like being able to but any of those situations at all honestly just involved a direct like i just fucking love your band dude i just wanted you know do something cool it's never been like i want to make money off your back or i want to change what you're doing i just want to like you know help you do what you're doing and I guess they saw the earnest appeal to, to what I was offering at the time because, you know, all of those friendships are still intact. I'm still friends with all those dudes and talk to them all the time despite years going by, you know. There's been seldom a, an experience since I got into this that I have an enemy or anyone I dislike in general, you know. It's kind of like – it's been cool. I always feel like I've, I've walked a straight and narrow with stuff like that. So it's just been – because I love the music and not because I'm trying to elevate any sort of status or do anything else. It's always just been like, I want people to hear this. I want more people to hear this. What can I do to make that happen? You know, I love, uh, like I love the catalog
0: too. When you go through your label, there's like so much, uh, weird, cool, interesting stuff for like, from, you know, the man we talked about to like nothing, you know, there's just like, uh, a, a lot of like interesting records. Like it's, a. You know, in both eras, you
1: know, you've had really cool runs with the label. With 8389, with the wildest thing was, and most people don't know, is not only did I do 8389, I worked a full-time job and had kids. And I would pretty much work my job from 8 until 4, come home and eat dinner and hang out with the kids and put them to bed at 7 o'clock because we were real young. And then I would go to the warehouse and pack orders and do label shit until like 3 or 4 in the morning, sometimes all the way until it was time to go to work the next day. And that was my life. Until I burned out and I stopped the label and I joined integrity. But it, it's taken off, you know. What I mean, it really had weight and it was able to be a platform that like for bands like full of hell and for nothing, and for like, you know, I'm trying to think what other bands really like springboarded off that. Those were like the two real big ones. Iron Reagan springboarded. That was the first record. You know, there's like and all the time was also a, a way my attitude was always to like get new bands and old bands and cross those worlds so get old dudes to like new bands and get young kids to respect the old bands and i always group these records together in a way that hey if you bought the new integrity if you spend like you know add 10 bucks and you get these two other seven inches these newer bands you know and it was a great way, you know i mean it kind of made its own little ecosystem because i used to do that fast every year that like people would come all over the world for and like left for dead had played you know we did left for dead despise you lack of interest at one time and Integrity played with the Melnicks one time. Yeah, you know? that's that's I the one that I can't played. believe I, n- I never got to see. That's like the oh, one man.
0: that's just like because that's like you know like and, and that's that is like the uh, like Fleetwood Mac they're never getting back together of hardcore. At Aaron's a been moment. playing with them. I don't know if you. Well, seen now him. it's different, but like I mean,
1: like up until that point, it felt like that was just something that would never happen. Absolutely, it, it took a lot of cajoling, and it eventually imploded right after because, like you know. Integrity's had already had like a good like decade plus of just Twit steering the ship, so it's like, yeah, the history is important, but he didn't need the history to keep the band going. He already had the band doing new records and things were happening with like Suicide Black Snake and Blackest Curse, and then eventually Howling, where it's like you know twid had made it its own its own fucking animal. So you know, bringing Aaron back and stuff is a treat because it's like you know it's the it's the original architect for the old fans and for the new fans, but it's also like you know. Dwight's created a situation where the band can keep going at any cost, and, like, you know, he'll be able to keep doing it for as long as he wants to, and I think that's magic. But, yeah, that show was unreal. It was, like, easy top five of all time. They're they're weirdly, like, they're, you know, and obviously
0: they've they've done covers and stuff, but, like, they're they're weirdly, like, uh,
1: almost like a 90s misfits in a way. Yeah. I think a lot of Integrity's aesthetic borrows from, like, Danzig and Danzig-related things right down to the skull, you know? but I mean even like the... oh sorry go on no just the way he runs the band it's just like you know it's very spoke it's very specific he's a that's the best way to put it. He's a very specific dude
0: yeah and how it's like it's it's almost this band that's at one time the greatest hardcore band ever and another time not at all a hardcore band in the same way the mists are the greatest punk band of all time and at the same time not at all a punk band
1: sure yeah I think the trajectory is kind of lined up you, you kind of put them together you know i guess like uh, trapped under ice too that's evidence is like i did really it's
2: yeah yeah A split with
1: 30 money yeah Both he, used those bands. <laughs> he used to live next door to me <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah justice lived in the house next door to me and uh their demo was awesome everyone loved that demo when it came out you know what i mean and uh geez they, they were starting out and the dudes were rolling up, but like, you know, they would show up without a bass player or just whatever and just play anyway. And I'm like, your songs are really good. You're not doing these songs justice by like, you know, regroup, you know, get that shit together and fucking, then they fucking did and it took over the world. You know what I mean? It was like huge. And like that, me being the small part with that seven inch was big deal. It was two of my favorite songs they did. But uh, I saw them at the airport the other day, me and my wife were in London. We went to go see Susie play at the Troxy couple of weeks ago and Angel Dust was on the same flight <laughs> which was <totally laughs> ridiculous, right I'm just like but it's, it, it's, it,
0: it's interesting though with like uh Dirty Money being like pre-high-vis and and uh turnstile kind of being you know the precursor to or to the post whatever I guess same time as trapped under right. race but mm-hmm it's another two bands that have both gone on to have like, I think high vis is, is blowing up. I think it's just the beginning for that band too. People love them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really connected. And so it's, it's interesting how, you know, there's another large part of this culture that
1: starts off on the label in a way. In a weird way, it's kind of touched a lot of things. I think you could trace most things back to the, you know, not patting myself on the back, but I think I managed to get my DNA on a lot of different things where it's just like even if it's like a small spec, you can be like, oh, fuck, you know, they played that show or did something. I was, And I take pride in that, not because for any other reason that, like, it proves that good music fucking deserves to be out there and enjoyed. you know what I mean? And that, like, I was right, despite even if it's like that big and being like, you should listen to this band. Even if it's just telling one person, you know what I mean? And seeing that band still around now kicking ass, that makes me feel good. That makes me feel like you know, I think there's a lot. You know, a lot of music that doesn't stand the test of time. That kind of like just I listen to it, and it's kind of flaccid and it doesn't really do much for me. So when it's like something that's really good and earnest and like really fucking hits, I like seeing it go the distance and seeing all those dudes go the distance is like it's been amazing.
0: If you were to tell me that all these years later, Back to Basics catalog minus the Fat Night's Fat Nut Seven Inch was uh, going the distance, I would have laughed you out a full
1: blast. I, I told you. People worshiping bulldoze is fucking blowing my mind. I'm all about it. Bulldoze is fucking bulls. The Blood Rock 7 Inch was, was, was my shit. I'm fucking, uh, I'm back, to, I'm back to basics. It was like this. They were called New Jersey Devil Corps, which falls in line with that that bloodlet description about spilling blood. And I was like, yeah. this record's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, man, this has been awesome, dude. And anytime you
0: want to come back on this thing and talk about any of this stuff, because we, we barely
1: we didn't even talk pulling teeth uh yeah you know you know tag. the doors always open sure anytime damien it's a pleasure it's great seeing you too it's been a long time i still remember like i said that one that one conversation where we talked about the biohazard demo when we first met <laughs> <We're just> like.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you dom for coming on the show And you're right there he will be back for a part two At some point in the future. Because there's lots of stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about on this one. And so we will be diving into that. Maybe a splits with him and uh, Jordan from Terror would be awesome. I'm booking the show in my head right now. Anyway, on to the next episode. On the next episode of this show, an amazing one. With a member of the band's No Use for a Name, Rat Pack, and the Foo Fighters, Chris Chris Shiflet will be on the show and I am very excited for you to hear this one, a fun conversation with a guy. I've been on tour, a road dog, a fellow road dog, and some uh, yeah, interesting perspective on his career. You'll hear that all on the next episode. Well, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect their, their selves, their, their rights, their freedoms. And stop hating violence towards people of different faiths and different races and different nationalities because this isn't politics. This is basic human rights shit. People deserve to be able to live free from hatred and discrimination. And if there's organizations in your community that are affecting positive change and you want to get involved, I'm sure they could benefit from your time or your money if you can spare it. And, uh, and, you know, it it, it, will affect uh, your mental health as well. Speaking about affecting your mental health, try meditating. I know a lot of people talk about this all the time, and I didn't really believe in it. And then I tried it, and now it kind of works for me if I remember to do it. So maybe it will for you. Speaking of things that work, I have seen miracles happen because of organ donation and organ transplants. So sign your organ donor cards because you don't need those organs when they come and look for them. They're, They're literally dead weight. And get involved in punk. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start a podcast. Not a podcast, but start anything. Anyone can do this shit. And who knows, you know, years later you could be uh, still involved, doing bands, running labels. Who knows? Who knows? One thing I do know is that's the end of today's show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe. Bye.